Expanding Economics Podcast. My name is Leora Schertzer. And I'm Ben Bowler. Leora, why are we doing this podcast? You know, Ben, that's a great question. <laughs> uh, in fact, I've got a story to paint a picture for you. I had an econ prof that went on and on and on and on and on about interest rates. I'd say maybe about a quarter of the course's lectures talked about why interest rates were the key to solving climate change. I should also mention that I didn't, uh, we didn't use a textbook, nor did he cite any of his sources. Hmm. But anyway, interest rates aren't something observable in the fossil record. There is a very complex and long history to their application and creation. So for that reason, I wanted more context. One day after class, I approached him and asked, would you be able to explain how it is that interest rates came to be? And he said, that's just the way it is in economics. If you were to open any intermediate economics textbook, you would understand how it is that interest rates work. Yet, I already felt that I understood the mechanism for interest rates and how they worked, but I didn't really understand how they came to be so ubiquitous. When I tried explaining that to him, he said, I don't have an answer for you. Interest rates, beyond being a theoretical phenomenon, have real implications in policy in many people's lives. So I'd expect my professor, who emphasizes the importance of this concept, to be able to historically contextualize it. In this podcast, we want to question mainstream economics and to raise awareness about the discipline's pluralistic nature. Uh, we aim to promote critical thinking, and we want to confront the issues that will challenge economic systems of our time. We want to ask questions like, what is wrong with how economics is taught at universities? How can we make economics more accessible, and why does inclusive economics matter? Here is what our fellow undergrad students had to say. Hey, I'm Manav Sundaraman. Uh, I'm currently a double major in economics and computer science at McGill. So what were some of the main takeaways you remember from your econ classes? What are some of the immediately like salient lessons you've learned? At the end of the day, the main uh, idea you take away from uh, the economics courses is the idea of building models. And then you build your models to suit particular situations, and these apply to both micro, macro, and other kinds of economies you look into. And so those kinds of uh, tenets of uh, economics are the ones really emphasized, at least in the first few years. Now, now, do you feel like those models and those concepts apply to the real world, especially when you're learning it? I mean, uh, most people go into the study of economics just hearing about the economy everywhere around them and you hear about this word so often you start wondering what affects it and then in your classes you're given these variables and these factors that affect the uh, overall state of it but then you look at it in real life and it's not that easy to just break down and I think it comes down to the numerous actual evidence that exists on what affects the economy and people around us versus what we learn is generally more about supply and demand being linear and then these being these 2D graphs that can somehow explain a large shift in something that's happening around us. Now do you think that some of the assumptions we learn in like neoclassical economics, do you think that those carry over the real world and do you think they summarize human activity well? 
if you look at neoclassical economics, it relies on this idea of rationality and people acting a certain way and uh, market shortages or surplus being able to be fixed through specific actions. But then you look at the real world and not everything is so simple. And then the behavior of different individuals affects the economy in different ways. And suddenly you're not just looking at model that applies that you can generally apply to everything and instead you see how nuance and cultures and so many of these other things that aren't emphasized in the uh, neoclassical model are actually affecting the world around us and and do you think that sometimes the assumptions of neoclassical can push people away from economics do you feel like uh, sometimes people feel like it's so abstracted that they don't want to be a part of it have you ever felt that way the truth is economics does not always have to be completely abstract and you can apply its theories and its principles and its research methods in particular into real world case studies and that helps you formulate your theories much better compared to just taking an abstract theory, being able to expand on it and then seeing the real world doesn't do that and then changing it and retooling it to say okay now we understand it better compared to actually learning from the world around us. So I'm currently taking a class on the underground economy, and this focuses on crime, you know, tax evasion, uh, money laundering, but also drugs and their production, and any kind of fraud you can generally think of. And my professor is not the biggest fan of economics, and economists especially. He really uh, talks about uh, uh, how people overinflate their numbers in terms of, let's say, crime, mm -hmm. uh, because it suits them in particular. And he says uh, economists just look at theoretical models and think that that explains the world, versus he's actually spent time talking to, let's say, criminals, since that's a study criminal economics. And he sees it's not just a $150 billion world market, according to some projection by an economist. And when you actually talk to people on the ground, he's really able to formulate much more empirical evidence. Do you spend a lot of your time wanting to break out of it? And do you spend, do you think you spend a lot of time that you're studying and just in class thinking about like one day I'm going to be able to uh, challenge this almost? Yeah, I definitely think so because uh, there are a lot of times, especially in, uh, you know, your early classes where you learn about a specific theory of economics and then you try to draw a real life analogy because it helps you understand it better. Mm -hmm. And then you think, you know, this doesn't really actually work that way because uh, when I look at it in terms of real life, I don't see the same result. And so it makes you think, am I going to learn more where maybe the what I'm learning is true and I have the wrong idea? Or am I going to learn more and realize that the way they're teaching it is wrong? So my name is Lucy Everett, and I've taken Econ 208, 209, 313, and 314, all for my major. Lucy, what has been your main takeaway from your econ courses? I think that the thing that I'm most appreciative of um, is having an understanding of a lot of the concepts that are talked about in uh, mainstream kind of political economy discourse. Mm -hmm. So like supply and demand, price floors and price ceilings, uh, how to calculate GDP, the concepts of deficits, debt, inflation, recessions. Uh, these are all things that I learned in those classes. And I think that it's really important to be able to understand them just because they, they get brought up in public discourse so often. Do you feel that the um, neoclassical models from your econ classes describe the real world? There's this idea that we talk about in the context of the environment, but also with like social geography and stuff of accumulation by dispossession, which is fundamental to the growth process all over the world. And I think that, you know, 
the discipline of econ tends to emphasize just focus on the accumulation part and ever all of the dispossession that results from that accumulation is ignored or considered necessary and in all my other classes we're looking at like what are the human impacts of these things another example is i have type 1 diabetes so every day over the last year i've been like oh my god i am so thankful to be canadian because the way that the u.s healthcare system works right now which is you know these ideas are what are used to rationalize the way that it works that means that there are there are people, they're, they're 27, they just got kicked off their health insurance and they're dying because they're rationing insulin because they can't afford it because the drug prices have been hiked to like $300 a vial. And I know this may, these may all seem like kind of digressions and they're all examples, but I think that part of the problem is that we abstract these things too much. And then like when we get into, when we, we tell stories about the dispossession part of the other side of this, I think that that's an important part of it. In your economics courses, did you feel like you learned different perspectives or about any disagreements within the discipline? I think that I want to give my, my profs credit where I just do here. I do think that they tried some more than others to present some degree of alternative. I also found that a lot of the theory that we were learning is decades old. So it's kind of easy to criticize at this point. Do you feel as though your undergraduate degree, or at least your economics courses, have given you a solid or at least rudimentary understanding of the economy? Definitely a better understanding than I had before I took the econ classes. Like I do a lot of climate change activism, so I do a lot of criticizing of this stuff in my external work already. Because I, I see, uh, like, as an environmental activist, I see criticizing the economic structures that are in place right now as uh, a necessity in kind of activism circles a lot of the time. There is, like, reluctance to learn this stuff. And I think that that's a shame because even if we don't agree with everything, it's still important to understand understand all of the perspectives. My name is Claire. I have taken the basic major classes as well as econ of climate change current problems in economic topics and the economics of well-being do you feel like the concepts and models from your economics class describe the real world no i don't know that they're supposed to but they definitely do not do you feel like the tenets of neoclassical economics with individualism, equilibrium, and optimization are reflected in the real world? To some degree, but not with the certainty that models at this level describe. If you were to open a standard micro or macroeconomics textbook, the models and concepts described would dominantly represent a single school of thought, neoclassical economics. Neoclassical economics is founded on three pillars, individualism, optimization, and equilibrium. Individualism assumes that people act only in their own interests to maximize their well-being. Optimization implies that we make the best use of a resource or situation, often to maximize profit. In equilibrium, people adjust their behavior until they achieve the best outcome for everyone involved. When the price of a good goes up, Consumption goes down, that sort of thing. Essentially, no economists would argue people always act this way. 
but instead that they are simplified assumptions that are useful for making the economic models we all know and love, like supply and demand. Anyone who takes an intermediate micro or macroeconomics course will walk away with a solid understanding of these models. Simplifications are necessary to understand something as complex as human social behavior. At the same time, many of the foundational models of neoclassical economics are fundamentally false. They aren't very consistent with real social interests and lack explanatory power for pretty ubiquitous phenomena like financial crises. We spoke with Professor Chris Barrington-Lee about the narrow format of university economics education, because as a student, we've picked up on his nuanced critical analysis of the discipline through his pedagogical style. To get started on questions for you, I was wondering what your experience is like, perhaps if you find it challenging to introduce alternative thinking and economics material after students have studied economics in one certain way for a number of years. My starting point is probably that a lot of students are disquieted by what they learn in introductory economics. I'm a little more freaked out by the ones who aren't in some sense, you know, because th th there is a lot of appeal at all levels of economics to this kind of positivist, quantitative and law-based view of thinking about the world. And some people love that, and I don't think that's good in the sense that uh, it it becomes an end unto itself. And so for many students, um, you know, I think they're, you know, students here are all, all bright and engaged and so uh, they're ready They're ready to hear something else and um, it's kind of fun to deal with, with concepts that they already have and to extend and challenge them. Do you get the sense that your students are undergoing a process of unlearning what they have been studying for years um, in your economics courses? Yeah, I guess quite explicitly. I mean, this, I'll never forget, um, I've had a number of unforgettable moments in my, in, in moving into economics, you know, without a normal background. But one moment was when I met John Helliwell at UEC. I think it was the first, more or less the first person there during my PhD program whom, with whom I seemed to be able to actually be completely transparent about my my take on things, my views on what we were learning. And it was already into my third year, but you know, when we first met, we kind of hit it off and, and had interest in common. And, and he said, you know, Chris, it's, it's really great. Uh, it's an advantage for you that you don't have an undergraduate degree in economics, you know, because uh, you haven't been brainwashed into all these, you know, these narrow ways of thinking. And it, it was very strange coming from somebody who was, you know, during his career, a towering figure in, in Canadian macroeconomics and uh, well-respected by all of the mainstream institutions academically and in policy to, to think that that the training might yeah might actually be detrimental i mean it doesn't it, there's so many there's a lot of cognitive dissonance uh, that, that i experienced among in my professors in uh, when i was studying and so that's actually more representative than than unusual in some sense but it's just it's pretty weird i can't imagine another discipline that would think like that yeah, I have this idea that that the 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 way that our homework problems are designed, the way that the education system is designed, which is all based around presenting simple paradigms that can be analytically and mathematically analyzed in order to gain some understanding about the world. That's all great, but the side effect has been that we've narrowed over time in some, you know, the, the what those homework problems look like. And if you do 500 homework problems in which, say, um, a competitive equilibrium is 
optimal for your definition of welfare, how can you not start to have that as an instinct? You know, humans, we spend most of our time, in fact, not optimizing, but following habit and um, following rules of, of thumb for our behavior and same mentally. So I just assume that people who have made it through that whole undergraduate and same is true in in um, the PhD level, have made it through all those examples are are improperly internalizing and extrapolating from the examples that we, we like to work with. Would you actually uh, be willing to talk about your transition from your previous background to economics? So, I mean, I was doing physics for 12 years and I, and I, um, I had always had interests in, you know, let's say social outcomes and was curious about the world and had, had some activist background. And so I, I wanted to be doing, I realized I wanted to be doing something more socially relevant. Um, and so the story, the detail that I'm hesitant to, to share because it's a bit too specific um, and I still don't have a full understanding, but I'll, I'll tell you because it relates a little bit to your opening anecdote. I read a book about about money, about what is called, economists don't know this term mostly, but is is called monetary reform. So it's the idea that the money system we have now is essentially a complete historical accident. There's nothing fundamentally right about the way we provide medium of exchange to society. In, the other, in, in other words, it happens for historical reasons to be mostly based on uh, bank-created debt, right? So we don't have an exchange system dominated by cash. We have an exchange system dominated by, in some sense, mortgages. And, uh, and so there's this group of people largely not trained in economics who had, have convinced themselves many times over the decades that this is the root of all evil. Right, and that if we actually had a different system with 100% reserves again and various other changes, many things would be better. We would be treating each other better. We would be treating the environment better. And we would not be addicted in some mechanical sense to economic growth. So I now believe that almost all of the arguments in that discourse are wrong. I've articulated, you know, to some of the people advocating them, this is incorrect. Here's a simple model to show you. And yet I'm not at all sure that the conclusions are wrong. So I was reading this and it, you know, if you're reading something in your evenings that says, as a, it's like a Jack Kerouac quote, I guess, right? Everybody, either everyone else is crazy or I am. So you can't just go on living normally if you think that there's something really major wrong with the world um, and that it's fairly simple. When I got into economics in the way I described, um, and I, and I was getting really fired up about what was being taught in undergraduate classes, in fact. And I remember, in fact, I was at a very progressive place. I was working in a space sciences lab at Berkeley. So I went and sat in on some economics, two economics courses, and so angry in those courses. Anyway, I had these fantasies of, of doing what, in fact, a lot of student groups have done, whatever. My, my version of fantasy was was basically, you know, to be flyering um, lecture halls. So you'd stand outside the lecture hall and you'd give students, kind of, you'd have some idea what was on the agenda of that class and you'd give students a piece of paper saying, you know, here are the places you, you sh here are the quest some questions you might want to ask and don't let your lecturer just gloss over these, right? It doesn't make any sense to not be able to answer these questions about this material. I never did that. Uh, well, anyway, so I, I was at the point in my physics career where I was about to take on a tenure-track job, and I was clear I was not clever enough to continue reading in the evenings on other stuff and do that, and so I pulled out, and as a result, I quit my postdoc as well, um, and I 
just plan to read economics for a year and figure out what to do. Or, yeah, so that became two years. And then, um, I mean, I guess, you know, I can be pretty open about this now. Uh, this is a difficult time for me psychologically because I was throwing a lot away. But I basically went, decided to go into a graduate program. I assumed it would be a master's program in economics in order to not so much learn economics, which I thought I knew enough about from reading how misguided it was, but to meet these crazy economists <laughs> and, uh, you know, almost undercover. You know, another thing that going in, I, I did have a few goals that I have not uh, um, met all of them, but I really thought also um, that, that, that modern economics is a rhetorical form. In other words, it's this language of kind of hyper-mathematical accounts of of the world, which, I mean, I, you know, I believe there's enormous power and, and, and benefit to thinking about things that way. But it's also just got pure rhetorical power. If you want to advocate for some policy and you can concoct a model which is looks very mathematical, even if the policy that you want to advocate for is, you know, even if you've chosen your assumptions essentially in order to end up with the conclusion you want, just the fact that you have a model in which the outcome seems to come out from some other set of assumptions, that's really powerful. And so my belief was that economists had, you know, more sway than they should in society in some sense because of this, the rhetorical power of the of their language. And it is, you know, and, and, and it became clear to me that it's very difficult for non-economists to criticize economics cogently. Most of the critiques that people level against economics are wrong, right? And, and so they bounce off economists, which is a really major problem because <laughs> economics is going to change largely through society pushing it into, into better directions. Um, anyway, so in some sense, I just wanted to wield that power because I thought, I mean, probably because I thought I wanted slightly different policies, right? And I thought, oh, this is something that, you know, if we're really off track, um, one needs to be able to wield this power to make change. Do you think the discipline must be, is inherently technical? Uh, or do you think it could be formatted differently to be accessible by larger masses of people? It's hard, because in some sense, I really think that's how we should be starting off. And, I, and, I, and I'm not, sh you know, I honestly don't know the degree to which we are or aren't, because I haven't had a ton of experience. I, don't, I mean, I can't say anything about how those intercourses are taught here. I can say how they're taught in some other places, and it's more or less, I think... I think they're they're more or less alike, so I shouldn't hedge my opinion there too much. Actually, you know, we we don't start at that broad level. Um, we don't start at the really the difficult, the thorny, big picture questions, and then say, well, can we say something useful by simplifying and picking this apart? So it would be nice if we had a, a much broader framing of what we're supposed to be doing in economics, I think, at the beginning. On the other hand, I think what's really unique to, and special about economics, because nobody else is doing it, is that we study self-fulfilling, systems of self-fulfilling beliefs in a, in a really useful way. I think, I mean, useful. It's certainly appealing, but, it, but it's got some in, use for insights um, in a way that nobody else does. And so we think, look, we have these micro-models in which we describe individual individuals in terms of behaviors or strategies and, and also beliefs. And we say, what happens when you have a lot of these people interacting together? And, you know, what kind of emergent outcomes are self-consistent? And that's not something psychologists can do. It's not something anybody else does. And yet it's all terribly overemphasized, right? I, I grapple a little bit with, you know, wondering how much of the current formalism 
one could throw away and actually still come out with, a, with, with pretty good policies and pretty good insights. I haven't thought you know, about that enough, but I see big enough problems, as I mentioned earlier, at the PhD level of, of our training that I'm pretty sure we are um, we're, we're being led astray by the formality, right? So we, we don't train our students. I will talk about the graduate level now. We don't train our students to start thinking about their work in terms of model-free empirical facts or empirical observations. In other words, you have to start with things that you know about the world, which you can describe objectively without interpreting them through some model. And then the goal is, you know, why is it this way? Or maybe even we want to change this with policy. How could we change it? Um, and instead, it's very hard to make the transition in economics from doing homework problems, which is you just think about the model, you think about varying a, an assumption in the model, and you wonder what's going to happen as an outcome in the model. And uh, it's hard to move from that to something which is really much more grounded. So, yeah, the undergraduate education should start out more grounded and somehow stay there at the same time as, as building up the, the analytic skills. And one way to do that, which I made reference to earlier, I thought was to couch them as a rhetorical tool, partly, right? I mean, these are, these are useful, but let's, let's be honest about the fact that they narrow our thinking and that they have rhetorical power, maybe beyond their, the confidence of what we get out of them. Do you feel that there's some sort of benefit to understanding the mainstream school of thought and neoclassical economics before exploring alternatives? To an, to an academic economist, you know, neoclassical is like a, it's, it's a model or it's some models. It's not the whole discipline. Whereas the kind of thing that we're teaching at undergraduate levels is probably, that's a, probably a reasonable word for it. It's a very restrictive set of stuff. And so, I don't know, if you're at the forefront of any discipline, it always looks like you're trying to break out of, the, of being stuck in the old mold. And so, the, and, then, and so you can always have the belief, well, we are moving beyond these, these restrictive uh, methods and assumptions. But, you know, is economics moving fast enough? No, I, I don't think so. I, I mean, most of my thinking about this, most of my critiques about economics are, well, there's two. There's one, actually, which is the... So the groundedness and the empirical accountability. And then the other is just relates to my work on, on having a more, you know, having an empirical, empirically accountable measure of welfare. So having a more human-centered measure of well-being. And there I can't but end up thinking that we're just so far astray in the, in, in the way that we think about these things in economics that there needs to be a pretty quick shift, which would come from outside, right? Policymakers get that m- more easily in some sense than economists do. Or, 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 or I don't know, when economists see the subjective well-being literature and even engage in it, they're able somehow to compartmentalize it and, and, um, and not have it change their practice immediately. And that's probably because if they embrace it properly, they lose their expertise, right? You, you can't just adapt all the methods that you've learned in school if you believe that we can measure human well-being best by by subjective measures and that they have a lot to tell us uh you you kind of have to abandon some of what you are doing and so that's not easy for anyone who's invested decades of their life in learning how to do a very narrow thing
Do you think these introductory courses that present theoretical models without explaining their empirical foundation provide useful insight into the real world economy? As I said earlier, I grapple with that, right? I mean, you know, I teach the prisoner's dilemma in in a school environment course. So how useful is that, right? I mean, some of the best game theorists avoid this question by saying, well, game theory is, ne- you know, it's, it's not predictive, which is a complete cop-out because, you know, they're not in a de- math department. If you're in an economics department, you're putting all these real-world labels on the the things you're talking about and the names of outcomes in the game and so on and so you are claiming that you're describing the real world somehow so prisoner's dilemma i mean it doesn't it doesn't describe the real world well right i mean in a society like ours where levels of default trust are quite high people in a more or less one-shot anonymized prisoner's dilemma cooperate half the time something like that and yet I found also in my teaching that using essentially the economics language for collective action problems is enormously important and powerful. And I think it's one of the biggest things that nobody in society gets, right? It's, and it's back to the prison. It's as simple as the prisoner's dilemma. I mean, collective action problems like climate change that we're in, but also 10,000 other problems, many of which we've already solved, they're larger versions of the, of the prisoner's dilemma. And... Uh, and we have so much of our entertainment media discourse, our public discourse, and our political discourse focusing on individual responsibility, when the news is much better and much worse than that, right? We actually, there's no need to shame people for being individually unethical. There's no need to shame society for screwing up on some of these things, and there's no sh- need to think badly you know about ourselves our friends or or humanity for for being challenged by collective action problems because they are innately difficult i like to say that if we find other intelligent life on other planets i guarantee you we will also find them struggling desperately or at least having gone through struggling desperately with global level collective action problems because by default there's not always one global government Anyway, I guarantee that they will be facing them because they've already solved all of the ones that are on smaller scales and they will be left with the global ones. And so instead of beating anybody up about it, we should celebrate the fact that we are able to understand and make any progress on these. And I think that's an incredibly powerful idea and I, economics really should get credit for it, I think. It's, it's stupidly simple and yet it seems to be highly unintuitive to people. And, and so our discourse and our policies, I would say all of our policies are treating collective action problems. And that's why we've solved so many. And that's what society is. That's what civilization is, more or less. Anyway, so, so that's, that the answer is that, that I, you know, I really do embrace the fact that we get, can get insights from this method in economics, which uh, Milton Friedman really championed this idea that um, you want to simplify the world ruthlessly. You want to make crazy assumptions um, in order to get some insights. And while the criticisms of economics are, are usually about those crazy assumptions, um, I don't reject the idea that that uh, in, in social science we can get useful insights by this method. So that's it just makes it a fine line. It means you have to be empirically grounded at the same time as using these tools. How do you think the way economics is taught now has changed since the mid to late 20th century? 
I don't have a good answer. I'll throw out a couple of bits of my ideas on this, which are yeah, not, not particularly novel. But the way I understand it, um, some of the things that are so important, namely the fact that humans are incredibly social beings, those ideas were absolutely fundamental in the eyes of the founders of of economics, right? Of the Adam Smith um, and others assumed by reflection, like all philosophers had before them, that we were motivated very much by social norms and social comparisons. And and so why is it that that's now considered to be an afterthought or a deviation or something you can put in as a secondary part in the model instead of being primary, right? So a really big thing in the education, I think, uh, conceptual education economics is what is your base model? What's your starting point? My understanding is that there's some the textbooks that that came out in the middle of the 20th century, Samuelson's and um, one other, which just dominated all undergraduate teaching um, through, you know, 15 editions or whatever. They took these more complex descriptions out just because you can't do homework problems with them. They're too complicated. Um, I mean, one chapter of my dissertation was the homework problem of putting exactly such preferences into utility function and then having the agents be aware, you know, be, be fully aware of <laughs> their own utility functions in a sense. And it becomes very hard. So that's taken multiple generations. You know, we have, if we haven't recovered from that, we're talking about 70 years of textbooks that are irresponsibly portraying a model simply because it's mathematically convenient. What often gets lost is that there are a diversity of approaches to economics and to understanding social dynamics. There's no one right way to assess human behavior and value, so why teach it that way? The Expanding Economics podcast is brought to you by Expanding Economics McGill and is produced in collaboration with CKUT. Theme music is by Ross Graham and Will Hanna. Special thanks to Manav, Claire, Lucy, and Chris for sharing your time and your thoughts with us. This podcast is produced by Ben Bollard and myself, Leora Scherzer. Until next time. <laughs>